They gave me a lot of training, um, little things that you would never think of, of, of teaching you how to do a 180 degree turn inside of a tight pass because the ceilings are low and, it, and the pass covered at the very end and you're fully loaded on a beaver having to add flaps and, and reduce the power to shorten your radius of turn. G'day and welcome everyone to episode number 47 of On The Step with that Mallard guy. I'm your host, Dan Bolton. On The Step is all about float planes and flying boats. To me, seaplanes are the best part of aviation, bringing together the fun of flying with the adventure of being on the water. Before we jump into the show today, I must pass on a happy new year to you all and welcome to 2021. According to my Mallard calendar, 2021 is the year of the seaplane, so I am sure all of you out there are going to have a great year indeed. Folks, one of the things I love about doing this podcast is meeting you incredible people all over the world, so if you get a chance, come and say hello by getting in contact. My email is thatmalladguy@hotmail.com, or you can follow me on Instagram and send me a message at thatmalladguy. My Christmas present was delivered as I got some great reviews on Apple Podcasts, including a review from AV8R Mo, who said, Your show has inspired me to get my seaplane rating, heading to Jack Brown's for my birthday. Great to hear, Aviator Mo. Please get in contact and send me some photos once you've ticked off that rating. Awesome stuff. If you haven't done so yet, folks, jump on and review the show. It is much appreciated. On the Step is proudly brought to you by the Seaplane Pilots Association. I'm sure that they will be hoping for a much more social 2021 after this slow year. So now is the time to get involved as they'll be hopefully ramping up things very soon. To find out more about the Seaplane Pilots Association, head to seaplanes.org. The Australian SPA also have some great events coming up this year, including their Splashdown Conference in the Whit Sundays in April check them out at seaplanes.org.au. Okay, folks, let's jump into the seaplane news headlines. Starting in Malaysia, and seaplanes will be a new icon for the town of Melaka from next year with the investment on seaplanes to be worth about 500 million RM. The State Tourism, Heritage and Cultural Committee chairman said the seaplanes were manufactured by a company in Penang and expected to be based in the Sungai Rambai Aerodrome near there. There will be further discussion with the company investors on the matter soon, he told reporters after officiating at the Tourism Melaka Futsal Challenge 2020 held at the Batu Berendam Sports Complex. He said many more tourism products would be introduced next year to further attract domestic and foreign tourists, hence increasing the length of stay in Malacca. That article from the malaymail.com website. To Alaska, where Wrangell Island, located north of Ketchikan, has received their first shipment of COVID-19 vaccines via a chartered beaver float plane from Sitka. Southeast Alaska Regional Health Consortium's Kathy Joe Blackburn was on hand to take delivery of the vaccine. She said she didn't know how many doses were contained in the first delivery. Aaron Angerman, also from the SEARHC, added that the first vaccinations were scheduled to begin this afternoon and would include the Rangel Medical Center's director, Dr. Lynn Prasonka. SEARHC has not said how many doses Rangel received of the Pfizer vaccine. 
It requires two doses taken three weeks apart. The Food and Drug Administration has authorised the vaccine for emergency use, finding it to be 94% effective. Angerman says the shipment arrived by charter plane because a commercial flight would have delayed delivery until that evening. Seaplanes being used in the flight against COVID-19. Great stuff. That article from kstk.org. To India and the much-talked-about seaplane service that was halted since November 26 due to technical reasons is expected to resume operations from December 30. Tourists are eyeing the Spice Shuttle Twin Otter seaplane service being resumed between Ahmadabad's Sabarmati Riverfront and Kavadia's Statue of Unity. On December 8, SpiceJet had announced that it would resume its seaplane operations from December 27 with two daily flights on the route. After returning to the Maldives for scheduled maintenance, the Twin Otter owned by Maldivian made an historic first on its way back to India as it operated a flight to India's Minakoi Island on Monday the 28th. Locally known as Malaku, Minakoi lies 125 kilometres north of the Maldives' northernmost island, Thirakunu, situated in Har Alif Atoll. According to Maldivian, the seaplane landed in Malaku during a chartered flight to the neighbouring country's Ahmadabad. The airline celebrated this voyage on its social media channels, celebrating that the seaplane crew for this flight consisted entirely of locals. Judging from the photographs publicised by the airline, a temporary platform had been developed in Malaku for the seaplane landing. Minakoi, although recognised as an island in India's Lakshadweep, shares much in common with Maldives, especially with regards to aspects of ancestry, culture and language. Prior to the seaplane landing, travel to Malaku was restricted to sea routes. Recent times has seen some aviation collaboration between the two neighbouring nations. Those two articles from nyoooz.com and edition.mv websites. And those folks are the seaplane news headlines. Okay, folks, on to today's guest. Chris Turner is following in his father's footsteps through aviation, but not into the airline path. Chris has found his passion in float flying, spending six months of the year as a seaplane instructor and the other six months bashing around Alaska in a beaver. Let's pack our suitcase. Checking into our airline flight, we'll board the flying bus to cross the continent for our next adventure. Arriving in what feels like another planet, We'll head to the docks to find our water bird for the next few months. Jumping in and starting her up, we'll get going on the step. Right engine is turning. 12% fuel. A lot. All right, welcome to On the Step, Chris Turner from Orlando, Florida. Chris, how are you, mate? Great. Pleasure to be here, man. Thank you. Awesome. It's great to have you on the show, Chris. Ready to uh, to hear your story. Love your Instagram, mate, uh, gt.wings. I think I've had you on before from memory uh, in one of the Q&As early on uh, in the show there. You might have thrown in a question there. I remember uh, seeing your name flash up a few times. Uh, here you're a big fan of the podcast, mate. Are you enjoying it? Yeah, most definitely. You you do great work, and I'm, I'm glad you're sharing the passion for, for what it is float flying in itself. Uh, awesome, mate. So. It's obviously for people like you who, who are in the industry and, and love to hear these stories and I love to, to share them and hear them myself as well. So really appreciate your support uh, of the show. But Chris, I want to hear about um, all about your story, mate. Uh, can you start off and tell us about how you got into flying seaplanes? 
Well, how I got to fly in seaplanes in particular was really I stumbled upon it um, after I got all my ratings. Uh, my dad and my mom gifted me uh, some money to get a rating in particular. And I decided to go for to, to get the seaplane rating at Winter Haven, Florida, and a place called Jack Brown Seaplane Base. And um, I got the rating just because I thought it was going to make me better on my skills. And I thought uh, if you brought in kind of your, your horizon in terms of the different licenses you get, you can be better at something right off the bat. But uh, then I flew those yellow cubs and I fell in love with it, man. As soon as I got that instructor rating, I went back and, and asked them if they needed instructors and got lucky and they did. Oh, so wow. I've been instructing there since. That's incredible. It's great to hear like those stories of people who who want to use float flying as that um, as that way of broadening their skills and just kind of, you know, becoming a better pilot all around really with, with no kind of goal to go down the industry, isn't it? Yeah, I, I actually, my my whole career now is, is uh, float related and I didn't even plan it or see it that way at all. It just uh, little by little advancing in the skill set, uh, it started opening doors here and there and fast forward four years from then and, and it's been great. So what was that, uh, you know, that first thing that kind of really catched you straight away when you were doing that uh, endorsement there at Jack Brown's uh, that made you want to be in the float industry? Um, I think it was the Cub. The The actual aircraft in itself is so simple, yet it accentuates all your bad habits so well. Um, it's It doesn't have an electrical system, so it, it was hand-propped. And then I saw my instructor hand-propping it at the time, and I was like, oh, man, this is awesome. Um, and then just, just the, the intuitive manner of it is flying stick and the actual stick and rudder of it um not having a a ball to know if you're coordinated just listening to your body or feeling the vibrations and the sounds of the engine to know the power settings because you can't see forward because you have your instructor in the front seat covering it for you (laughs) so I, i just think uh really learning how to fly um in in the word in itself was what attracted me to it yeah, well, it's real seat of your pants flying, isn't it? Especially in the Cub there. Uh, I was lucky enough to do a bit of a Cub flying in New Zealand a while ago, um, mainly just as a passenger. But as you mentioned there, it's real seat of your pants and, you know, it's um, it's a great experience and great feeling straight away. Yeah, most definitely. And, and uh, my whole family is kind of into aviation um, and my dad always kind of made fun of me of, hey, you're going to be one of those magenta kids or magenta generation and following the, the autopilot stuff and just clicking buttons. And uh, that, that really stuck with me. So I, I found little by little different ways of, of learning how to use the magenta to, towards, your, towards your advantage, of course, but lo- knowing different skills like glider flying and uh, float flying and aerobatics and stuff like that. So as soon as I got into the float flying, I was like, oh, this is a perfect way to really hone in your your basic skills of just flying, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So tell us a little bit about your, your family influence, mate, in aviation and, and what, what kind of uh, direction and, and or paths have they taken? Yeah, so um, I'm originally from Venezuela, so my, my native tongue is Spanish. And uh, my whole family, my dad well, is, is still a pilot. My mom was a flight attendant. Uh, my two grandfathers from my mom and my dad um, were both pilots as well. My grandfather was a, a 747 captain for Singapore Airlines, and then uh, my grandfather was an RAF uh, La- Avro Lancaster pilot in wow. World War II. 
So uh, my half, kind of half of my family is British, and the other half is uh, is Venezuelan. Um, and we've all, even even cousins and and uh, and aunts are were flight attendants as well. So I kind of grew up seeing that, um, and I that's really all I wanted to do. Um, but my my parents were kind of adamant on me not going that path straight away. Me going for like a university degree first having that notorious plan b if something goes wrong and uh that kind of really didn't work out for me um my parents my my family right now they all live in india so my dad flies for a company an airline out of india and um initially i was living with them over there and i started uh was going to start going to college for architecture and man that really sunk in with me knowing that that's not what i wanted so I sat down with my parents and told them, hey, man, I, I, this is really not what I want to do. And I'd, I'd rather, I would hate for you to see money going to waste uh, in a degree that I'm not planning to use. So my parents, thankfully, I had my parents help me out on, on my flight training. And I came to the United States, and that's where it all really began. But I started late, kind of late for, in comparison to all the people around me. I wasn't one that soloed at 16 or anything like that. I started at 23. And... Knowing that I started late in life, um, I, I told myself that I had to hit the ground running. You know, so in the meantime, I've gotten all my licenses uh, here in the states, and yeah, and still in the process of it. Yeah, that's crazy, mate. So, whereabouts did you really grow up? You mentioned there, like your parents are in India now as well. Like, um, I, and did you just come to Florida recently in the last few years to do your training? Um, and you know, what was it like being around your parents at that young age who are always involved in aviation, be it, you know, airlines? Well, to for for my parents related question, um, it was it was excellent. I actually traveled quite extensively and being part of a kind of legacy known airline in my country, uh, you would always get to travel like in business class or first class and um, back in the in those days that my parents were flying, it was the the golden ages of aviation. I mean, my dad was flying a DC-10, and I was riding along in the cockpit on, on his on his seat, you know, while he was just <laughs> taking pictures of me. Um, back in the days that you could actually get in the cockpit, so I have, yeah. you know, four or five year old pictures in the flight engineer seat, uh, pressing buttons when when the aircraft was on the ground all shut off, you know. So it it, it was excellent, um, but. With that same token, um, seeing so much of the aviation industry, it, it, it really didn't drive me too much to end up in the airlines. I mean, I knew that eventually I'm going to end up in the airlines or it was a, a natural path, but it wasn't really like a passion as much as it is a passion for flying in itself. So I think that's why I've, I've, I've gone about different routes in aviation and try to find new licenses and skills that could improve me here and there. Um, and when it comes to the living situation, I, I grew up in Venezuela, then came to the States uh, because my dad was flying at the time for American Airlines, uh, American Eagle, actually, which is the regional airlines for the, the mainline airline. Yeah. And uh, that, uh, that lasted about three years, and that's when I actually learned English. Then I went back to my country for a couple of years, then my dad got offered that uh, India um, job and then we all moved to India and my parents have been there for about 10 years now. Wow, that's incredible, mate. Um, what are the aviation scenes like in Venezuela and also India uh, for someone to try and 
get involved in aviation? Well, it's a it's a love hate relationship, really, because it's not as openly as it is um, in the United States that GA flying or general aviation flying is is wide open and it's very accessible. In my country, is more of if you're a pilot, you're joining an airline, and pretty much the same thing is true when it comes to India. If you're not a military pilot, you're an airline pilot, or vice versa. And um, the love part, though, is that uh, very much I think like Australia does it the same way, but here in America, you require 1,500 hours to even touch an airliner. Um, back in my country, as soon as you got out of flight school, and especially if you were the kid of an airline guy, you were going right seat on a wide body aircraft. You know, um, I don't know if it's smart or, or not, but one thing that's for certain is that you have no instilled bad habits and you right off of flat, flight school. So you're really a sponge to, to become whatever they trained you to be, you know, uh, here, uh, after the 1500 hours, some people do it flight instructing and, um, charter flying and banner towing and stuff like that to then go for an airline that possibly you might or might not have some bad habits instilled in you, you know? Um, yeah, it's, that's an interesting topic. Like, you know, here in Australia, we're exactly, well, we're pretty much the same as America there where we have a, a pretty heavy GA industry and, and pilots generally only go to the airlines later on in their career, um, you know, with, with two and a half, three thousand hours, some of the times, obviously, depending on what the industry's like and it's probably a bit higher at the moment with COVID, you know, stopping a lot of those jobs. Um, but, you know, Qantas, for example, Qantas is renowned for being one of the safest airlines in the world because of the quality of its pilots and, and the, the way they've come up through the industry in general aviation, instructing, doing a lot of charter stuff in, in the outback, a lot of small twin flying, etc. Um, and then you hear a lot about some of the, maybe some of the Asian car- uh, carriers, uh, especially, you know, are a bit like that India and Venezuela example that you gave where they're basically jumping into these airliners um, with basically no experience other than their um, their training. So it's it's interesting the perspective um, that these countries and pilots can go down. Yeah, that's an extremely debatable topic really. Um, some are in favor of it, some aren't. I mean, I obviously... Uh, starting at in your career, one would be in favor of going straight into an airliner because that's where everybody kind of want to ends up, you know. But but for the old timers that are already in it, they they can see the value into getting more experienced pilots uh, before getting that newly uh, right out of the flight school kid, you know. Um, so yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. I mean, my my former roommate of mine that was Chinese, he was explaining how in China they go. Right after flight school, they, they, they bring them here to the United States to get trained, and they hop on an A320 with only 250 hours, but they don't touch the aircraft for at least a year, a year and a half, because they're sitting in the jump seat observing. So they're an yeah, observing right. pilot for a good solid year. Then they go uh, for right seating. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's really debatable as to if it's good or not the way they're doing it, but... Uh, but yeah, Qantas has an impeccable safety record. Yeah, yeah, I've got a few mates who you know are bound to the airlines, and you know they're they're always asking the question, do I kind of hang around GA a bit longer and kind of experience it? And that's one of the things I love about float flying is like it's it's the true 
and you'll probably back this up as well, being an instructor on a cub, you know, it's that real seat of your pants flying and that real authentic flying experience um, where you, it's just you and the airplane a lot of the time, six passengers maybe in the back, 10 passengers, you know, doing these adventurous, you know, flights. Um, whereas I think that airline lifestyle is kind of the end game and it's debatable. Uh, some people would probably argue against this, but maybe it's not as fun and enjoyable um, as what I think the general aviation lifestyle is, you know, especially flying floats. So, you know, I generally say to those those guys, you know, stick around GA a bit longer and kind of you're only going to be GA once and, and really experience it and, you know, have a bit of fun with it. You know, you're going to go to these incredible places that you're probably not going to ever go to unless you're in general aviation. Um, so make the most of it and, and have a bit of fun with it. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. And and uh, the, the irony in that is that uh, there's a lot of airline guys that end up coming to the float plane rating in Jack Brown's because it's been their bucket list item for forever. You know, the, the real... The real question is what what is what does one like and what does one as an end goal? Because I can see the appeal into the airlines, but the the monotony of it can get really boring. But the 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 level of money that you make and the amount of free time that you have it seems to be the only job that the more time you spend in the company, the less you fly, the less you work, <laughs> the more you make. Yeah, you know. So so with with that. With that approach, you can simply grab all that time off that you have and go and get ratings, uh, other, a million other types of ratings. You know, I, I personally, uh, one of my best students, he's, a, he's an A330 pilot and uh, for, for one of the airlines here in the United States. And he has helicopter ratings and skydive ratings and seaplane ratings and all sorts of ratings and all of it funded by the airlines. So if you see it that way, it does totally makes sense because quite frankly being in the industry making a full-on career out of float flying is definitely different than it is making a full-on career in the airlines you know it involves more more time patience work ethics and and sacrifices than maybe an airline would an airline guy would do you know yeah uh, you know i speak to spoke to uh, peter killen um recently on the martin mars and you know one thing i said to him was was there any you know, seaplanes that he would love to kind of get in and fly that he hasn't flown yet, you know. And, you know, his answer was, you know, I don't want to just get in an airplane and just tick it off. I don't want to say that I've done, you know, some circuits in a Mallard or circuits in an Albatross or something like that. Um, Yeah, yeah. He he was talking about working it. Exactly. He said he he wanted to work the airplane and and do it, you know. Like, it's all good and well to say that this guy on the A330, he's got all these ratings and everything like that. But in the end, his day job is is to fly this A330 from A to B. Um, Is he really working these airplanes and and being involved and getting to know these airplanes completely? I don't know. Maybe he's happy just to, to kind of tick that off. But... I think that's some of the great things about general aviation and seaplanes in particular is we get to, to do these adventures day in, day out as our day job. Sure, we don't make the money that the airline guys will, but that's where the real passion comes down to in, in actual flying. And that's what I love about this podcast and, and talking to people like yourself or anyone around the world who who they say, look, I don't really care too much about the pay packet. I'll, I'm happy with what I'm going to get in the seaplane industry and there there are some good jobs out there you can have a you know you can have a successful life financially on on float plane flying you know um oh oh most certainly and and the people that i i i 
feel privileged to call mentors um, in the seaplane industry. They make an excellent living for themselves from from the chief pilots of the uh, one of the companies that I worked in Alaska to my own boss in the in Jack Brown seaplane base. I mean, those guys have made a, a a living out of this, and they couldn't be happier and have a a wealthier life, not only financially but in family wise and quality of life. You know, yeah. so so again, as simply as as he, as you approach your goals in the aviation, and that's why these podcasts are are so great. It shows you that airlines is not the only route or military is not the only route, but, but float flying in itself is just, it's, it's, it's such a passion driven skill. It really is. I mean, you, you meet, uh, plenty of the bush pilots that talk with so much passion as to flying what others, what some airline guys might see as a 182 as a simple aircraft or a 185. while these bush pilots are flying the pants or the edge of these aircraft. You know, yeah. so it's it's quite neat. It's it's very nice. Exactly, mate. Let's jump back into your career a little bit, mate. A little bit sidetracked there with the, with that topic. But um, so tell us, you, you got your start there at uh, at Jack Brown's and you started instructing there. Was that your first job in in aviation in general? Uh, no, it wasn't. Um, so, like I said, I started uh, relatively late. So. By having that mindset that I had to hit the ground running, um, I started networking and becoming in what they known as an airport bum here, um, <laughs> of hanging hanging around the airport and just talking to people. So, really, my first job I would say was flying a King Air 200, even before I could log the time because I didn't even have my multi back then. Simply because I was uh, offering the guy to wash his King Air, you know, yeah. and um, I ended up washing that King Air like. I think five, six times for free until the guy just said, Hey, you know what? You just hop on board, you know, and let's, let's go to new Orleans. And then, um, that lasted for about 50, 55 hours or so until I graduated and then left, left that flight school, which is a flight school on the West of West coast of Florida. Uh, highly recommended. It's a flight school by the name of crystal Aero group. And my dad always told me that to look for a flight school that had, a that didn't have a tower, but that had a tower close enough that you could cross country to it. Oh, yeah. And the reason he did that was he, he said you should hone in in your skills uh, first of flying and focusing on the flying aspect of it and not on the what's outside the aircraft. So this, this is a small flight school that had a grass strip and a paved runway as well. So you had a little bit of both worlds. Your actual soft fields were in soft fields and your short fields were in short fields. So... This was a great flight school that that really gave me everything from from my aerobatic training to my private pilot license, you know. Um, so it was great. So from that point, um, an old instructor of my father, I met him quite young in my life, and he w- is a dedicated corporate pilot. And so right after flying that King Air, I started right seating on on corporate jets. Um, from knowing nothing really from just being well a monkey taking pictures outside the window to now fully being considered a a crew member you know um so that that went along the lines of me also getting a job in a simulator company uh which is a category d simulator like uh like for example like flight safety it's not flight safety but it's similar to that um and what i was doing in that company i was translating uh, 
Spanish-speaking crews from Latin America to English. So wow. I would go. I would be going through the full type ratings of an aircraft without being able to log it or say that I did the type rating, just because I was only translating. But I learned a lot out of it. And on the side, I was also doing the pre-flights for all the the jet simulators on the at that company. So I would have to come like at around 12 at night until four in the morning, just pre-flighting all the jets, making sure all the switches are working, all the lights are working, making an ILS approach, making all the, all the controls are, are working in unison. Um, and that was really neat. I did that only for a year because it was really, um, it paid a toll on me having to be working on a day job at Jack Brown's and, um, then at night having to come to the simulator company. Yeah, imagine. You know? So so yeah, my Jack Brown's was my first actual instructing job. Um yeah. and I, I can't I can't say that I I regret one second of it because it's 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 been great. It's um the ja- the challenges of in itself of instructing at a place like Jack Brown's seaplane base is is that you have only two days to teach a guy to fly float flying uh, to to have the whole decision making skills of float flying so some people see it as oh wow you're giving ratings in two days you your job is easy but others might see it as to i get multiple types of personalities and multiple different skills of flying to teach them all the same standard style of flying that we do at browns you know so it's it's been great it's been uh awesome to be part of that organization it's a kind of like a close-knit family by now yeah what's what's been your biggest challenge as you mentioned that you know getting people done in two days is 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 quite challenging but what other challenges do you face you know jack browns as an instructor there i'd say the the pilots with the most amount of experience that have to verbalize it are the most challenging to to deal with simply because uh, um, they're approaching a new skill, comparing uh, comparing it to their years of experience. So what you see them doing is trying to flare a cub at 300 feet, like they do their airliner. You know, um, yeah. when really when when all are flying in the float flying at, at the seaplane base is generally at 500 feet. Um, so really is is the, 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 the biggest challenge, I would say, is getting them in tune to listening to their bodies and not depending on instruments too much. Uh, because they, you could see them, the student is sitting behind you, and you can see them peeking on top of your shoulder just to see the airspeed indicator or the altimeter. <laughs> yeah. you know? And you're like, hey, just, just look out your wing and look, and look at the attitude of, of the cord line of that wing and see that it's not parallel to the horizon. That means you're still climbing or you're still descending. You know, you're not an actual cruise. You don't need an altimeter to know that you're not climbing or descending anymore, you know? And little things like that is, is, is really, I would say, not quite a challenge, but, but more of a, I don't know, it, it's, it, it gives you the, the wanting to continue to find different ways of elaborating the same exact same things all the time, you know? Yeah, I, I remember my first biannual flight review, and this is a little bit of a similar story. Um, I was, you know, flying a, beaver and i think i was on the caravan at that stage as well um, both amphibs in the wit sundays there and i went back to do uh, my biannual flight review for the first time in a cessna 172 and you know i could not get this flare height right in this 
Cessna 172 because, you know, like an Amphib Beaver and Caravan are so high up. I mean, I think the Caravan yeah. is almost as high as a 737 cockpit. And, you know, I was just like, oh, my excuse was, oh, you know, it's because I've been flying these Amphibs. They're just so much higher up. I, I, I just can't get this feeling. The guy was like, you know, I do biennial flight reviews with, you know, 747 pilots and they all pick it up pretty quickly. And I was like, yeah, okay, that's... that's uh, that's not a good excuse, obviously. So I need to need to get better at this, you know. He's just like, just look outside, look at what you're looking at right now on the ta- while we're taxiing, and just try and remember that. And just when we come down again, just try and think back to that and, and get that right. So I can kind of understand where you know getting these guys who are coming from airlines with huge big times in you know these huge aircraft to come back and fly a Cub and then add the the water element in as well it must be incredibly tough sometimes. Yeah, yeah, and it really is, and, and to this day, it amazes me how similar pilots from similar backgrounds take so different approaches to getting to the same goal. You know, uh, on what helps them to to take in the fact that they're flying with a big door opening to the right. You know, with the wind slapping you in the face and uh, flying a stick and rudder aircraft that you cannot see anything in front of you, but to the sides and. Uh, listening to your gut feeling and knowing if you're descending too quickly or you're sinking, so it's it's a skill that that uh, I think airlines have lost it little by little. The the quicker the airplane starts going, the the less uh, feedback that aircraft gives you in terms of sound and 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 airfoil distribution or or, or feeling per se, you know. So yeah. it's quite neat to see that. Yeah, exactly. Now, mate, you mentioned um, you did a bit of flying in Alaska as well. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what you're doing over there? Yeah, so um, f- float flying and uh, Jack Brown Seaplane Base opened the doors uh, to companies in Alaska. So here to go to Alaska, they, they like to see a minimum of at least 500 hours of float time alone. And in Alaska, kind of the float flying seems to be kind of like the epitome of flying because generally people go up there to pay their dues by starting in 172s or 206s on wheels to then upgrade to turbine wheels to then go to floats and then turbine floats. Um, so it's it. I, I wouldn't say it's rare, but it's not so common for people to just arrive and go straight to floats in Alaska. So Jack Browns were open the doors for me in that in that regard, and um, because I went to Alaska with my wife, which by the way she didn't even hesitate. To when I told her, hey, what do you think about going to the middle of nowhere in Alaska and uh, for me to go for a flying job? And she was all up for it. We packed our things in our car and literally drove from Florida all the way to Alaska. <laughs> um, and it was it was amazing. We we crossed 32 states and two countries, and it was beautiful. It was it was definitely a trip to remember. Um, but I ended up going to a company that uh, it's a Part 135 company, meaning a charter company. And um, based out of the capital of Alaska in Juneau. And I did quite a bit of research to, to find a, a good enough location that it wasn't only a fisherman's town. Not that I have anything against that, but I knew that I was going to be going with my wife. And I would like yeah. something that, that would mix well with the social life of my wife possibly going out while I was working, you know, and not just being in the dead spanking middle of nowhere. Exactly. You know, so so Juno was perfect for that. And um, there's this company by the name of Alaska Seaplanes, which I highly recommend. Extremely professional, um, awesome, top-notch training that really gave me the – opened my eyes to what Alaska flying could be. 
you know, if it wasn't for the training that I got there and I would have been thrown in the pit like like some operators do in Alaska, I I, I don't think I would have loved Alaska as much as I did I did. And as currently I'm still going up to Alaska to fly for a different company. So I flew for one season with Alaska seaplanes. It was awesome. They gave me a lot of training. Um, little things that you would never think of, of, of teaching you how to do a, a, uh, 180 degree turn inside of a tight pass because the ceilings are low and, it, and the pass covered at the very end and you're fully loaded on a beaver having to add flaps and, and reduce the power to shorten your radius of turn. It, it seemed, you know, unnatural to me at the beginning to be reducing power and just banking, um, but then they explain everything so well to teach you like, okay, if you reduce power, well, your ground speed reduces and then your radius of turn reduces. And I was like, wow, I never thought about it that way. But he was like, and, and they would tell you, yeah, that's necessary because you're between two mountains and under you, there's unlandable water because it's white capping. And then you can't go above it because the ceilings are low, you know? So you're in these tunnels of mountains, water, and air that uh, you have to stay in between that and hope that everything goes well based on your training, you know? And uh, it was it was quite an eye-opener and an awesome experience. I, I loved every second of it. Yeah, I can imagine, mate, like the, the challenges and, and just the complete difference of flying going from somewhere like Florida, which, I mean, I haven't been there myself, but it looks quite flat. <laughs> and then compare that to Alaska, which is, you know, so mountainous and... As you mentioned, the weather there can change in an instant, and you know, just it must have been incredible that just that real change in in scenery. Yeah, it, it certainly was, and um, I remember in particular one one story. Uh, so the motto of the company that I was working for was flying at a higher standard, and I really thought that was kind of like you know, it's a it's a motto, it's a company, you know, it's it's PR, but uh, I truly believe that that their training really entails uh, you trying to fly at a higher standard. Because I remember a particular day that I was a little bit nervous uh, going out because I knew the weather was bad. And this was my first, uh, my second week being in Alaska. So I was, I was super nervous. Um, and the aircraft was fully loaded and the winds were blowing pretty hard. And Southeast Alaska uh, is notorious for being extremely mountainous and there seems to be no flat. It goes from water to straight walls going up as a mountain. There's no kind of de degrading mountains that give you a little bit of flatness. No, there's just mountains and water. And so that day um, I took off and I didn't, I didn't take off just yet, but I, I think in a, while talking to dispatch in my voice, maybe I sounded a little bit nervous. I don't know. But uh, then I receive a call from the chief pilot saying, you know what, I'll, I'll ride along with you, you know? And I was like, why, why, why? No, just no reason. I'm just riding along, you know? And I was like, oh, okay, great. And uh, flying along, it gets uh, a little bit low. So it, the visibility starts decaying quite a bit. And I start getting nervous and saying, you know what? I have the chief pilot on board. I'm fully loaded. You know what? I'm just going to turn back and go back home. And he looks at me and touches me in the arm and says, hey, man, just relax for a second. And... Just slow down, get your airplane ready to slow down and and descend a little bit and descend to that deck, that legal minimum deck. If the if the clouds get any lower, then decide to return. And sure enough, I descended and the thing opened up beautifully. It, it, it was like a solid deck that I just I was getting close to that solid deck. And by not knowing the area and the weather, 
I didn't know that by getting just 200 feet be lower than that, I would have been going across all the way to my destination. And it was those little things that they would teach you that, that are not really written in a book that you really appreciate today. And now I know that he hopped on board with me because I guess he knew that I was a little bit nervous and that I was still a green pilot or new pilot in Alaska. Because uh, it doesn't matter how much flying you come with, it, it, it really doesn't prepare you for Alaska until you really do it. You know, um, so it was it was excellent, excellent. Yeah, that's awesome, mate. Uh, what kind of flying, like job wise, were you doing at Alaska Seaplanes there? What were the kind of daily, you know, jobs that you had to kind of achieve? So my jobs were flying in the Beaver for a scheduled routes and unscheduled routes. Um, scheduled were more of delivering the mail, delivering uh, things as simple as pizza, you know, or milk or <laughs> eggs. Uber, you know, to, Uber to these eats. Yeah, yeah, you, you're a glorified Uber Eats, essentially. <laughs> um, and these remote areas of Alaska that the only thing that keeps them alive really is the boats and the flying. And sometimes the boats are not even able to go because the, the, the waters are so high. You know, they, they get, it gets whitecapping quite a bit, you know, so the boats can go out, but we can. And so... Apart from the scheduled routes, uh, we would do unscheduled routes, meaning taking hunters to the middle of, of lakes and cabins. And uh, also we, would, uh, we had a contract with uh, the sea pilots. And the sea pilots are these, these guys that are highly trained, highly skilled uh, individuals that uh, help out the cruises that go through Alaska through the notorious Inside Passage. These guys hop on board that cruise and help the Norwegian guys and the... I don't know, the, the French guys or wherever the cruises are coming from, these guys hop on those cruises and, and, and help them navigate through the inside passage. Um, so we would uh, take those guys to wherever they needed to go and we would do boat transfers. Um, we would, uh, yeah, but basically boat transfers and, and, and different destinations where the cruises would end up just to take those guys there. Yeah, nice. So... I'm just looking at a map here as well. Juneau is quite east in Alaska, isn't it? Did you do much flying over at the kind of Anchorage area and, and kind of mix in with the crews that kind of work out of there? No, I, I never got to Anchorage. So southeast Alaska, looking at that map, it looks like a little panhandle that is right next to Canada. Um, that's the only part that I flew. The the, the highest I, I ever was was uh, all the way to Skagway, and the lowest I ever was was Ketchikan. Um, that wasn't with Alaska seaplanes. That was just flying elsewhere. But but uh, all my Alaska flying has only been in southeast Alaska. I've never kind of actually looked at this area that much. Is it very similar to that Anchorage area? Like I've you know I think when when people think about seaplanes in Alaska, they probably think more of the Anchorage area because of that. Is it Lake Hood, the seaplane base there at, at Anchorage? Yeah, and, yeah, it is. Um, it's Lake Hood, and um, southeast Alaska is a little bit more. Uh, mountainous and rocky uh, okay. anchorage area there's there's areas in alaska that are extremely flat the the plains of alaska and also there's there's huge mountains but in in southeast is it seems to be only rocky pointy unlandable mountains and the the weather in southeast alaska is a little bit less stable than up north um the microclimates what they like to call them are are situated juno could be blowing like crazy with low ceilings and then 50 miles west it could be dead calm and looking beautiful 
you know so in, in uh in the north part of alaska it seems that the, the those systems are are bigger and they're more predictable so yeah but i i haven't flown anywhere in in in, in the north part of alaska i would love to but uh yeah, life has just taken me to the southeast. So you're still um, going there in the in the summers, are you? And and you know swapping out the seasons with Jack Browns. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I uh, I spend the summers in Alaska um, and winters here in Florida, flying corporate and then instructing at at, at Browns. And uh, but now I don't work for Alaska Seaplane. So once I left, uh, COVID hit, and right before COVID. Uh, after my season there, I said, well, I, I kind of checked the box of Alaska. I love it, but um, I have to move on, I guess. I saw it that way. So I joined an airline and started going through training and the type rating. And I joined the airline simply because they were offering at the time these big bonuses and uh, paying for your ATP and your ATP CTP, which is a, a particular training now that they require for you to get your ATP license. So I said, this is a no-brainer. Let me join the airlines for maybe a year and get all my, my licenses paid for, get some money under my belt, some good experience, and then see where that takes me. Um, so then COVID hit. I got furloughed uh, from that airline. And uh, thankfully, I got to keep the bonus, and I got my ATP out of it and my ATP CTP, but I never got to finish the type rating per se. So right after that happened, I was like, well, let me continue doing what I was doing before. So I called Alaska Seaplanes, and COVID was was hitting everywhere quite as much as it did to that airline in particular. Um, and they said, hey, we don't, we don't have any jobs right now. We're actually not taking any seasonal guys anymore. We're taking the full-timers. And the full-timers were the, the ones that stay throughout the winter. But then uh, out of the blue – one of the guys at Alaska Seaplanes, they, they call me and they tell me, hey, there's this lodge in Alaska that's uh, need, in need of a pilot, of a beaver driver. And I was like, well, that's excellent. So my wife and I, again, they told us this on a Friday. And on Monday, we have everything packed and on an airliner to head back to Alaska. And um, we went to this lodge and turns out this lodge is incredible. It's to the south of, uh, of Juneau right above a little town called Cake. It's still in a, in a place called Admiralty Island, um, quite secluded. It's the only thing in that area that uh, of land is, is that fishing lodge. And it's this uh, luxurious fishing lodge with five-star stuff. I mean, and they just bought a beaver from Kenmore Air in Seattle and immaculately kept beaver, and they needed a driver for it. So I went over there, and my wife also went up there, and now my wife and I work in the summers in Alaska at that lodge, and she works at the lodge, and I, well, I fly for the lodge, so it, it worked out great. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Uh, just looking at some, I think you've put a couple of photos up of that lodge on Instagram. Um, another shout out to that GT dot wings if anyone wants to look at it. Um, some beautiful, looks incredible little lodge on the on the water there. Hey, what's the kind of flying schedule for them? Like, how often are you flying, and is it mainly just passengers for the lodge out of out of um, the main airport there, or something? Is it? No. So, so the what's neat about it is that the company that I used to fly for, Alaska Seaplanes, is the one that uh, brings all the, the 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 passengers and the guests to the lodge, uh, since they're a Part One Thirty Five operator. And my goal is to feed the lodge. So I go and do the grocery runs. I do the. I get all the parts for the boats because there's more than seven boats 
that they have to take care of. And then I get parts for, for the lodges themselves because we built, or not we, because I haven't, I haven't been part of that, but the lodge itself, they build all their lodges from scratch right there. And it's the beaver guy that's bringing all the parts. Um, so really you're the bloodline of the lodge apart from the passengers. Yeah. Wow. That's so, it's so incredible to think that just like a lodge in the middle of nowhere needs a beaver float plane just to run errands, you know? Like. Yeah. It, it's, it's insane to me. To, it blows my mind to this day and I fly every day there. Um, every day, every four days, uh, there's a full rotation of about 33 guests. Uh, so you can, you can imagine that the first and this last day are kind of like the more hectic, but the, the second and the third is where I fly a little bit less, but I still fly, um, because it's as simple things as one of the runs that I did, I, I found it pretty neat and, and comical that I did a full flight from the lodge to Juno because that's where we get all our supplies is in Juno just to take, uh, water samples because the city wanted to see or, or get a, an inspection done to the lodge. Like it's pretty standard on every other, like your house or, or any other building, they get inspected by an inspector that comes and checks your water. Well, this one, it required a full on beaver flight to take samples of water in these pea looking containers, uh, <laughs> to this, to this main office that I had to take myself, uh, just for that and then yeah, head wow. back to the lodge. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, I, I kind of say that, but then again, you know, I fly three restored turbine Grumman Mallards for a pearling operation, and sometimes we we fly, you know, one person or some a little bit of freight out to the farms because they simply need it. So uh, it happens in aviation, isn't it? There's some odd jobs out there that you know people use random aircraft and unique aircraft um, just to get the job done. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. I mean, it's uh. It's quite unique, and, and I think that's also part of, of the, the love that one ends up building for that career because uh, I'm not trying to demean the airlines whatsoever, but in the airlines, you get into your aircraft and you close that door and you have no really connection with your passengers or, 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 or what you're doing, really. I mean, uh, one company that I love in particular is FedEx, that they fly out of Anchorage, and I see those, those MD-11s flying, and it's awesome, but you might be supplying an entire industry or family out of that MD-11 and you would have never known. While in the float flying in Alaska, since you're, you're actually the supply of, of multiple uh, little towns, you, you see the, the change that you're doing. You see the, the people appreciating that, that, that carton of, of, of eggs or that gallon of milk, you know? So it's, 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 it's beautiful. It really is. Yeah, very rewarding and, and that's what I've always said and I've always loved that part of the seaplane industry. Uh, you know, most of the stuff that I've done and probably all the stuff really in Australia is generally tourism seaplane based. It's not like Anchorage or, you know, those parts of Alaska or Canada where you're actually supplying these towns uh, for their, you know, general supplies. Um, but even then in the tourism industry, you're getting to take out people on these amazing tours and you get to see the the response from those passengers firsthand it's not always great when uh it's a crappy day and the sun's not out and you know it's raining and and you get you have to deal with angry people who don't haven't enjoyed yeah. their tour but uh, <laughs> uh, a lot of the time it's it's a really positive and enjoyable experience to to spend that time with those people 
Most definitely. And I'm, and I'm actually a little bit jealous of, of your job, too. I mean, you're flying a gorgeous aircraft, man. I mean, I've seen some pictures in your Instagram as well. And just the picture alone that you have for the, the, the emblem, you could say, of at the step, that's some beautiful glassy water, man. I mean, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's a solid picture. It's not always uh, glassy like that. We had a good, another good glassy day the other day, but uh, yeah, it's open ocean. That's the thing is uh, you can get you know, get glassy days like that every now and again, but you can also get some very rough um, swell and 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 chop there as well. So it's a good combination of both. But um, but hey, uh, that's that's the beauty of, of float flying that your runway is always different and it can change in so many different ways. You know, so it's kind of like what we like doing. Exactly, I think that's what most of us love about float flying, isn't it? The just the the complete difference um, and variety in in every kind of landing and takeoff, um, no matter where you're going, you know. And you know, with our job, a lot of the pearling stuff is just to the same locations day in day out. Um, but w- the water element just changes it up all the time, whether it be the wind, the tide, the swell, you know, where the boat is relative to where you need to land you know there's just so many variables which which change every landing you know uh, some people kind of don't like this job or they don't apply for the job simply because we go to the same spot all the time majority of the time which we're starting to kind of venture out more with the charter work that we're doing which which makes it a lot more interesting as well but you know you can go to the same place day in day out and it can all change and be different because of um, float flying so that's what I love about it yeah, yeah, most definitely. It's 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 that that is actually I, I'd say the epitome of float flying is how variable and how much it can change. I mean, th- there was times in when I was flying for Alaska seaplanes that we had a marine radio on the aircraft that you'd be communicating with the boat guy before you land, uh, just for him to be aware that you'd be landing right close to him because there was mountains on the other side that you couldn't land. You know, so it it, it was I. Like I said, I, I enjoyed every minute of it, and you learned so much that once you go back to flying land airplanes, uh, the level of adaptation that you have to changing scenarios on the land counterparts is is second to none, because you're continuously adapting on the float flying side, you know. So it's it's awesome. Exactly, mate. Well, Chris, um, we're going to jump into the splash and dash questionnaire now to uh, wrap up this interview. Um, so just like the land plane touch and go, the seaplane splash and dash, we're going to touch on a few um, seaplane related questions. Um, so, mate, starting off, uh, what's been your favorite seaplane that you've flown so far? Is there anything else other than the beaver and the cub that you've got your hands on? Um, well, in, in the seaplane base, uh, we have a, a super cub and a mall. And uh, those are great flying airplanes. Um, but the, the one that I've, surprisingly enough, the one that has given me a, a really big smile, not that it, I would say it's my favorite because the Beaver certainly is an awesome aircraft, is this little aircraft made in Brazil and designed by some French engineers as well called the Super Petrel. And yep. uh, it's a biplane pusher glass cockpit amphib airplane. Um, <laughs> So it, it was the, what I loved about it was the uniqueness of it, um, because you're flying the the staggered wing biplane uh, with full glass cockpit and autopilot, but then you have a Johnson's bar flaps that it can't get more manual than that, and uh, sorry, not flaps, landing gear, and and it's it was it was an excellent aircraft, very small, and it was it was a two seater only, and I'd say that was a very fun aircraft to fly. Uh, float flying wise 
Yeah, that's awesome, mate. Uh, lake, river, open ocean, or um, some coral caves. Have you done anything like that down on the coast there at all in Florida, Bahamas way? No, I haven't. No? Uh, not, not on the floats. What's been your favorite uh, place to land a seaplane so far? So my my favorite place is one that is heavily disliked sometimes by some pilots in Alaska. It's a, a place called uh, Elfin Cove. And for the company that we used to work for, uh, you needed actually a special checkout just to go to that place. Um, just because it was a a an open water, so you were dealing with uh, swells and uh, big boats, and it was right tucked next to a mountain. So the wind, unfortunately, always came from that mountain. So it created this humongous rotors right off the mountain. And uh, there was it was also a one-way-in, one-way-out type of takeoff and landing. And once you were coming into land, you had to commit to it because there was no possibility of going around either. So you really had to take all that limited information into account to then try to put it in the best way possible in that in that little sliver of, 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 of water because there was only also a very little place um, – to land and you were sharing that with other boats as well so it was quite challenging to go in there um and i i loved every time that they told me to go and it was always this love-hate relationship that you had with that destination the, the other guys would tell you hey where are you going and you would say elfin cove and everybody would look at you and say oh fun or oh i'm not jealous of that or something like that you know and yeah. uh I, I i loved it it, 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 it those challenging experiences i i thought what what was made me a little bit better pilot, but I certainly did some, some stupid stuff sometimes, um, out of that same location, uh, like taking off out of huge swell and the aircraft bouncing, taking off and landing again and taking off and landing again until fully you had full, full enough energy to get airborne. Those times would get your, your heart beating. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Some crazy stories in, in, in all different locations around the world, I'm sure. What would be your dream seaplane to fly if you could pick anything out there uh, that you wanted to get your hands on? I don't know. I mean, it, it really depends on the on the question of, of am, am I, I going to be owning it? Am I going to be working it? Am I going to be just flying it want, just mate. once just, for fun? Just, <laughs> just, uh, but, uh, surely there's something out there that just takes your eye and you're like, that's the that's be the ultimate just to do whatever. Uh, yeah, so I would say two. Two aircraft would be one would be the the Dornier Sea Star. Uh, it's oh, yeah. a kind of relatively new aircraft. Yep. And uh, that would be a very neat aircraft to fly. And uh, a Grumman Goose or a Grumman Widgeon. Nice. Um, those those I think it's a perfect mixture of multi-engine boat flying, tail wheel, amphib. I mean, it's it's kind of like the best of all worlds, all put one in one aircraft. Yeah, that's pretty pretty good answer, mate. Um, what about any dream seaplane jobs out there that you've you've seen and just been like that's that's got to be the ultimate? Uh, I my mine is kind of like a contortion or a mixture of different jobs. So I would say the ultimate job would be flying floats and in particular a twin otter on floats into the East River in New York City. Yeah right. <laughs> yeah, with those uh, few, few operators that are going to the East River, hey, and and uh, it seems incredible. Um, you know the, the with the skyline there of Manhattan to one side and, and the boat traffic and wakes and everything that you can get in that river. Um, 
Everyone who says they've flown in there says it's pretty hectic. Yeah, yeah, you're dealing with with airspace and traffic and helicopter traffic and then the big water and the East River and the boats and everything and uh, seeing uh, this uh, Instagram star, I would call it Dion Mitten, I think has been on your show as well. Um, he, he describes the flying in the East River very well and the pictures he takes always put me in awe, but but I would love to do it in a twin otter on floats. That, that, that'd be awesome. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. I think it'd probably be the perfect airplane to get in there. You know, being short takeoff and landing can handle the bit of rough water if it needed to be, but um, this caravan seems like they're doing the job. Yeah, most definitely. And with with how hectic it is, I I think the Twin Otter, the 400 with the with the new sweet avionics in it, um, that that would be awesome. It would, yeah, it'd be great. Sounds pretty good. Uh, what do you think is your favorite looking seaplane or best looking seaplane that you've seen? A Beaver. Beaver. Straight float or amphib? No, straight. Straight float. Yeah. They're, they're yeah, cool, a, a straight a straight float with that that beautiful radial engine. I mean, they, I I can't think of anything better looking three blade that. prop or two uh so if if i had a choice i would go for the two blade just so everybody can hear me coming <laughs> <laughs> uh but but operational wise it makes more sense the three blade i'd say yeah. i think they look better with the three too i reckon yes yes i think they look better with the three just just the just hearing a two blade prop breaking that's the, those tips breaking the speed of sound is ridiculous it's yeah. it's awesome <laughs> What about the the worst looking seaplane or the ugl- ugliest? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I any seaplane's good looking. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think those floats is is like adding makeup to an aircraft. You know, it's, yeah. it makes them good looking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, awesome. Last question, mate. Um, what about some advice for anyone who wants to go over to Alaska to start um, flying float planes? What would you kind of tell them? I would tell them what I would tell anybody, not just to fly to Alaska, but to approach in aviation in general. It's just whatever you feel like you want to do, just really kind of pack your bag and go do it, you know, and and hand out resumes in person and, and do networking. And obviously know that you have good skills under your belt because there's no good in, in having great talk and, and great skill abilities in, in networking while your flying doesn't match up. You know, so really take the time as to reading a lot and and taking a lot of of information now with podcasts like these and 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 YouTube in general that you can know things that remotely anybody would know 50 years ago. You know, they would have to learn it the hard way. Now we're in a in an era that we can learn it the easy way. I I would say so. Take the time to put the effort in networking and and skill development. Yeah, awesome, mate. Great advice. Well, Chris, it's been awesome having you on the show, mate. If anyone wants to go check out Chris's Instagram, it's at gt.wings. Chris Turner, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming on the step. Thanks, man. It's been it's been awesome. It's been great. Happy landings. You too, mate. Cheers. And that's the show for today, folks. Thanks to Chris for sharing his stories. I really enjoyed having that chat with him. Check Chris out on Instagram at gt.wings. Folks, as usual, if you love this episode of On The Step, do me and the industry a huge favor by sharing it to someone you know who will enjoy it and then jump on Apple Podcasts to leave a five-star written review. Let's get to 100 reviews as quick as possible. Don't forget to come and join me and some other seaplane fanatics on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. 
Next episode is another fun episode talking with the chief pilot of Horizontal Falls Seaplane Adventures, Emma Holdgate. But until next time, everyone, thanks for coming on The Step.